0: Today, we are going to talk about uh, actually two subjects fused into one. That is uh, erasure of uh, science, Indian science, from our curricula, from our memories, and the role of the two invaders that we've had. And that invasion, actually the mental invasion continues till date and uh, we have as usual Wednesday evening ji plus we have uh, uh, Dr. Raj Vedam to tell us uh, something in depth about uh, all these issues so let's go straight to them and before that I just request you to please subscribe and also to go to our description to support us and to follow us Namaste, all viewers. Uh, namaste, Rajvedam ji, as namaste. well as Shabuti ji. Namaste, namaste. And uh, wonderful having both of you here once again. And today, of course, the focus will be on uh, Rajvedam ji because uh, he is going to give us an overview of a very important subject. So I go straight to Raji. Raji, <clears throat> how important is the erasure of uh, science? Our own science and our own mathematics, and the traditions of science and mathematics, and the philosophy of science and mathematics.
1: So, so to, that, I, I,
0: I just frame my question how, how important is that for the Westerners to keep our self esteem low?
2: That's an excellent excellent question, Sanjay Ji, thank you. It's a pleasure again to appear on your show over here on the Jaipur Dialogues. So um, to me, it is falsity on an enormous scale, on an enormous scale to not acknowledge the contributions of ancient Indians. I'm always absolutely uh, shocked when I read history of mathematics as written by Western experts or on the history of astronomy and these kind of things, where the acknowledgement of India is literally zero. I mean, figuratively, they say India got the symbol zero. (laughs) That is about it. So that is a smoke and mirrors for people to go around chanting that, yeah, we got the zero and the numerals. And by the way, anything else is appropriated away. So Indians appear content, just saying, yeah, we got the zero, we got the numbers, but in between people have no idea about the enormous heritage we have in mathematics, in astronomy and everything else, which has been appropriated away from the Indian civilization. So it is incredibly important if you ask me to to put, put the record straight to show with evidence what are the accomplishments of ancient Indian scientists in mathematics and astronomy, medicine, different kinds of learnings, and how it impacted the world? And over the years, I've collected a lot of data and evidence on, on, on these things. And it leads to the question, so why exactly are the Westerners also obfuscating all of these things? Why are they so intent in trying to hide these accomplishments? So it, In fact, in this famous series called Cosmos about 20 to 30 years ago, this famous uh, NASA scientist, Carl Sagan, positions that question. He says, so why is it that Indians and Chinese did not tumble into science and technology the way the Western civilization has? Why did they not do that? It reveals so much of ignorance on his part of history. It reveals so much of obfuscation that has happened thanks to so many different forces acting on India. So let me just give a very quick background to the Sanjayji. So the story goes, since William Jones found this commonality, Sanskrit, Latin, Greek, and all these kinds of things, they wanted to know why exactly are European languages related to Sanskrit? What is the relationship of Westerners to the Indian people? So that started off linguistic analysis. That started off a whole lot of different narratives and among those narratives was one where Indians are supposed to have come from Central Asia. At least what they call as Aryans are supposed to have come from Central Asia, 1500 BCE, and brought with them this uh, uh, Sanskrit language, caste system, cow worship, and all these illiterate nomads, by the way. These guys had no idea <laughs> of anything. They <laughs> destroyed. <laughs> Illiterates produced a language of such sophistication. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And, and they destroyed. They destroyed a superior civilization, the Harappa civilization. They overran these guys or chased them to the south, wherever. And then these illiterate people were running around northern India for 1,000 years. They did not have any civilization no writing, no nothing, only uh, caste system, only cow worship, this kind of thing. Until Magadha's contact with the Greeks in 300 BCE. Then the Greeks civilized the Indians. Then suddenly Ashoka got Brahmi writing and other such things. And suddenly we became civilized and suddenly we became uh, normal. So the question comes, because you are a young civilization, it's only the Greeks who civilized you after Harappa. Therefore, you cannot have any learning, no mathematics, no astronomy, no medicine. You don't have enough gestation time for that knowledge to have taken root. Therefore, you must have copied from the Greeks you must have copied from the Babylonians. You must have copied from the Chinese, Egyptians. Everybody taught us. You were great students, we learned, that is about it. So this is the positioning of Indian sciences and technologies to the present date. It tells us that we learned uh, astronomy from the Babylonians, ast- astronomy and mathematics from the Greeks. It says that uh, uh, the Turkic Muslims taught us uh, cuisine, music, architecture and other such things. It tells us that uh, our Brahmi script came from the Levant region, Israel region, through the Semitic scripts. It tells us that the British got us rationality, logic, thinking, and these kind of things, prior to which we were an illiterate, uh, uh, irrational people. So they got us all these things. So these are the kind of narratives that are continued even today, thanks to this uh, flagship idea of theirs, that there is Aryan invasion theory. That is the central cause for all these bigoted narrators. So so what, 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 what we are seeing is whenever the Westerners encounter evidence contrary to their assertions, they have an option. They have an option. The option is, is our assumption wrong? What can we do about it? How do we accommodate this Indian data point that we have here? They always chose the path that Indian methods are wrong, Indians did not know what they were talking about or their methods are corrupted. And it requires a superior Western science and white man's burden, all those things to correct their records. For example, when William Jones, when uh, he wrote in a diary, after reading all of this Indian chronology and uh, looking at uh, Purana chronology, going back to enormous antiquity, he declared in a letter that either the first eight chapters of Genesis are wrong and our national religion is false, or we need to do something about the Indian uh, records. So they took the path that they are right, the arrogance that they are right, and the Indian records are wrong. So you see, Sanjay Ji, this is the uh, trajectory that has been set throughout Western academia, perhaps starting with William Jones and Max Muller, going all the way down to present times carried forward today by Nehruvian socialists, Marxists and others who continue in the same lineage. So this is what we have. We have an utterly bigoted narrative that arises from the um, uh, ideologies of various entities who've had a vested interest in controlling the historiography of India. That is what we are observing.
0: Okay. Uh, So that is the brief introduction today of yours. Uh, just to start you off on the journey, uh, where would you trace the first traces of science in India?
2: Excellent question. Excellent question. So so we, we see that the earliest Indian wisdom has always been in the form of stories. So our ancestors found that if there's some phenomena in which they understood what is happening, how do you explain it in a vocabulary that the common man understands and that learning is going to stay through time? So they couch that in stories and metaphors and things of this nature, drawing from the palette of divinities and ideas and notions and uh, uh, in an entertaining capsule, if you will. So ancient Indians initially observed a natural phenomena, things like, for example, the moon appears to rise every day in a different part in a different time about uh, 48 to 50 minutes late it changes uh, uh, by the way against a different backdrop of the skies and it takes 27 days to come back to the same backdrop of the sky so that was the beginning of the sidereal month that the moon takes 27 days to come back to the same backdrop of stars and that was the beginning of the nakshatra model that they could divide the sky into 27 segments, the ecliptic, the ecliptic is a path where the sun and the moon appear to traverse. They divided that in 27 segments and called it the nakshatras. They also observed that the moon is going through phases from Amavasya to Paranami, back to Amavasya, they saw that it is taking approximately 30 days. So the tithi was important, computation of tithi and they observed approximately 29.5 or 30 days, let's round it to 30 days. So they had the sidereal month and the synodic month is based on the phases. Then the Indians had also observed that the sun appears to be offsetting in the sky every day when it rises is offsetting, going north, 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 northernmost point, then coming south, 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 up to the southernmost point. So they referred to this phenomenon as Uttarayana and Dakshinayana, and they could precisely measure the solar year to be 365.24 days. So Indians had these three things, they had the synodic month, sidereal month, solar year, and they wanted to find synchronisms between these things in order to mark the passage of time. Passage of time was a very, very important uh, uh, thing in the Indian context. So we find enormous intellectual activity. Going back to Rigveda. Rigveda itself was talking about the year of 360 days. And then we find uh, Atarva Veda, which is talking about Adhikamasa, that Rohita, created Adhikamasa that is there in Atharva Veda. So there is every notion of calendrical development appears to be very very ancient as far as India is concerned. There's a different question how old is the Rig Veda, how old are these things, a different question but as ancient as some of these oral traditions we have had this calendar system. So we have three Phenomena, sidereal month, synodic month, solar month, seeking synchronism, uh, lunar month of 360 days in 12 months. And that is divided uh, with adhikamasa. You bring back into synchronism the solar year, insertion of a special month every so often. Every five years, you average it out. It comes to 365.24 days. We find this. Then we find other things. They said mahurta. Mahurta is the basic unit of the day. And there are 30 mahurtas in a day. And from the Muhurta was born several other ideas. Eventually Indians had the Panchanga. Panchanga was a five dimensional measure where you measure the nakshatra of the day, tithi of the day, the yoga, karana and uh, vara. And with this, they were able to talk about the passage of time. So we are seeing that the antiquity of Indian mathematics and astronomy go back to enormous antiquity in the oral tradition itself we are seeing observations, observations of eclipses, observations of transit, conjunction phenomena, all these things are referred to in ancient texts. Sometimes these are couched as stories and we have to unlock the wisdom in the stories by understanding the metaphor. Sometimes it is explicit and we understand this is what the information they intended to communicate. So Ji, I think the mathematics and astronomy go back to great antiquity to answer your question. And in parallel, ever since India, Indians have been Indians, we have had also medicine. So medicine also has got a very, very long antiquity uh, going back to very, very ancient times, much of which we see in Atharva Veda, for example, but even prior to that, we see that. So different streams of knowledge, mathematics, astronomy, medicine, philosophy, there is great antiquity. We cannot put our finger and say, here is where it started. This is the inventor where it started from the old traditions, it's apparent that the civilization has had these notions for a very long time.
1: Vibhuti you want to ask any questions? Oh yes, I want to ask questions behind the curtain, that there are no stupid questions, only stupid answers. So this is a subject matter I know very little about, uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but then asking a question is the beginning of a learning, right? So Raji, you have virtually assumed a guru-esque stature and I applaud you for that. It's a pleasure to meet you today. I, Thank you. You know, so as a, you know, I bought a t-shirt at Delhi airport. Uh, Google can give you information, but for knowledge, you need a guru. So we are in front of you today. I, basically, I'm seeking that knowledge Thank from you. you is that, you know, you talked about Carl Sagan. Was it ignorance? My question is, was it deliberate? Because the Western people have stolen that. This a historical fact now. We know that now. Right. So whether it was uh, numerical notations which traveled from India to Arab world and became Arabic n- notation, you know. Right. You talk about the zero, you talk about decimal system, Shushruta, everything has Indian Hindu origin. It all got stolen. Right. And my question here is, is the fact that how did we allow the brilliant scientific temper that our ancients had to be decimated by the invaders. They stole everything. And we became reliant upon things Western as superior to things that was our very own. So the point which I am trying to ask you and inquire from you is what led to the destruction of our scientific temper that we did not fight, resist, or cultivated again, whether it lead to modern unicorn, invention, innovation, we are all there. Right. It's there in Mahabharata and Ramayana and Bhagavad Gita. You read it. It's all there. Right. right. Thinking as well. I mean, sto- stealing of our ability for cognitive reasoning and logic and everything is all there. Right. right. How do we let it happen and how are we right. letting it happen even today? Right. So, so we, we, can, we, can,
2: we can take this, the, the main thrust of our talk today along two uh, segments. And one is the impact of, if we go backwards in time from current times, the impact yeah. of Christianity comes, then Islam, then again Christianity in the past. it comes Christianity comes twice in this. It's yeah. a dual appearance. <laughs> so starting from the recent times, we know about the impact of colonialism. Even today, India is reeling under the impact of colonialism. It is not as if suddenly magically 1947's all gone, our destinies in our own hands, no such rubbish. I think we are uh, bearing the impact, even today we are suffering under that. So um, talking about colonial period, The British, like I said, William Jones and others who came to India, they came with a biblical point of view. They were Anglican church people who believed that God had created the world 4004 BCE and destroyed the world Noah's flood 3000 BCE. Nothing could have survived a flood event except the descendants of Noah. And when they saw the Indian records that predate that, they said, oh, my goodness, we have a problem here. We need to correct it because Indians don't know how to do any of these measurements or understanding of time and such things. So they went through a process of distortion. So the distortion in a calendrical system started with people like William Jones. It was carried forward once this commonality of languages was found by Eurocentric linguists ranging from Germany to uh, elsewhere in Europe. A whole lot of people jumped to the bandwagon trying to say, yes, there's a common people, common language, proto-Indo-European, and this is how the migration happened. All these kind of narrations started out again Eurocentric, again distorting the civilizational history of India. That's the second thing that happened. The third, along with uh, 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 missionaries who had come to uh, so the missionaries were at the forefront of translations. We need to understand that they were at the forefront of learning Sanskrit and trying to uh, translate the Puranas, Vedas and every such thing. As they were translating, they were aware that these texts are uh, a direct existential challenge to the Bible and other such things. So the distortion started in their translations itself. We are seeing that too. Overall, today, with the luxury of uh, hindsight, we can say that the British practiced ethnocide in India. They practiced ethnocide with five mechanisms. So we can count that. I've talked about how the British uh, created poverty in India. India was a very prosperous country. I've talked about that in the past. 35% of the world GDP in the uh, beginning of the Common Era. And then falling by about 10% over 1,000 years. If the trajectory had continued to 2000 years, we'd still be somewhere around 20% or 15% of the world GDP, but we are not. We are somewhere at 4% or so. And the reason is because in the 1700s period, we see a rapid downfall in the fortunes of India. And there are enough number of people who have talked about the impoverishment of India. So British impoverishment is a first mechanism of ethnocide that is followed by the missionary activity, missionaries who wanted to convert Indians so the destruction of religion by their uh, coming in atrocity literature, creating fracture points and other such things, they, they destroyed several things, self-esteem and other such things. Third is the invention of caste. So the identity itself of Indians was hit directly by uh, corrupting the Jati Varna system, which they were completely aware of, force fitting it into the notion of caste and stratifying and make, making that stagnant rather, so, they were able to do that. So, the invention of caste and the breakdown of identity because of that. Then, we have uh, uh, the, the corruption of our history itself. Our history has been corrupted tremendously. And I told you about the chronology issues and uh, all of those kinds of things. Then, the uh, so called English Education Act of 1825 with the Macaulay and the others. So, they decided that we are going to alienate these Indians so much from their background by forcing them to learn English. So they uh, um, withdrew any funding for Sanskrit or Arabic or schools or whatever, and said all funds will only go for English education. You want a clerk job, you better know English. So this forced along with poverty, the breakdown of education system in India and the adoption of English. So as far as the very recent history of India is concerned, we find British ethnocide led directly to a collapse of the Indian knowledge systems. So one might have said that, wait a minute, uh, it was not that pervasive, maybe by 1947, things would have been different and so on. Unfortunately, 1947, this Fabian socialism of Nehru came into the picture where uh, they were of the same boycotted views as Karl Marx and uh, uh, other Marxists to follow later in India. Uh, They believed all history is a history of class conflicts. So they came with a bigoted lens of looking at all social dynamics in India is a story of class dynamics. Who is against whom, who oppressed whom, that person is oppressed by this person and so on and so forth. So they created enormous tensions at the micro level in India by doing this kind of a thinking. That is the first thing. Second, they believed that change will come on the back of a revolution. That change is necessary because we need the old order is corrupted. That's the assumption. First starting axiom or assumption is old order is corrupted. To destroy the old order, you need a revolution. And you have to replace it with a utopian classless society. This is their uh, thinking. So the Nehruvian socialists believe that change can come in under the democratic ages. Whereas Marxists believe in bloody revolution. Just go and kill the intellectuals and others of the old order, we get a new. That's the only difference between them, otherwise they're joined at the hip. So Nairobian socialists took over 1947 with this utterly bigoted view in uh, looking at all of Hinduism as backward, primitive, to be thrown away and all these kinds of things and looking at the so-called adoption of Western methods as modernity as uh, the way for India. So uh, the, 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 the problem is, these are not at loggerheads. That's what my talks always say. What you call as Western science is a continuation of Indian thought with an interruption of about 500 years. That is not realized by our people, but they went with killing the old ways, say the old ways irrelevant. That is a problem. Since 1971, we know Indra Gandhi who made a pact with the devil literally for political survival. And uh, since then, Narul Hassan and so many social sciences institute created by the Marxists and manned by the Marxists by edging out the emic uh, practitioner. After 1971 to today, about 50 years, there is no person or professor of uh, Indian leaning, Indian lens based knowledge in any position of power in academia, in any university in India, because it's so pervasively controlled by these people. So, this is the most recent destruction of the Indian learning ecosystem by these people because everything in India to them is bigoted, Is there's a rotten, primitive, old, superstitious to be discarded. They cannot, they don't have the ability to see it otherwise because their ideology demands that. So I talked about the present time, I talked to the colonialists. Let me go a little back to the Islam people now. (laughs) So uh, since 7-11 um, uh, or so, when Bin Qasim uh, 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 invaded in Sindh, they were able to take uh, pundits like uh, Manka, uh, Kanka, and they, they were able to take them to Baghdad, forcibly kidnapped them to Baghdad and uh, converted them and forced them to convert Sanskrit texts into Persian and Arabic. So that was the, that is what they did. So uh, we know that texts like uh, Brahmagupta's works, Shushruta Samhita, Charaka Samhita, all these things are translated into Arabic. That is how these people living in Baghdad and places like that, prior to that, they're practically literate. This is how they got to know mathematics, place value, geometry, and all these things. In addition, by inheriting old Greek texts, which were in turn, again, Indian knowledge, we'll come to that later. So uh, this is how Arabs got it, but then, Arabs, after Sindh, we had a period of quiet for about 300 years because of the Rajput kings yeah. and the Rajasthan, they were uh, or Gujarat kings, they were preventing the Arabs from coming in. But after Ghazni, Ghazni came, first thing he did was destroy this Jyotirlinga temple in Haryana. And that was a great center of learning. That was destroyed, several other temples all the way up to Somnath and several invasions this man destroyed. Each of them was a center of excellence and center of learning. Everywhere where there was a major temple in India was literally university, where pundits were there, people were there learning and all these kind of things, all gone. Then Gori came along and Gori did his nonsense, Then uh, his murderous acts rather. And then you have uh, Bhaktiya Khilji and other Delhi Sultanate people who did enormous damage we see, for example, Ujjain. Ujjain was the center of astronomy and mathematics in India. The center. If you wanted to learn astronomy and mathematics wherever you were, you will go to Ujjain. That is the way it was. Mahakaleshwar temple over there. That's where you'd go. In fact, Bhaskara II, he was a professor at Ujjain. And where was he from? He was from Karnataka. From Karnataka, he migrated to Ujjain and he became the professor there. He was teaching over there. Rilavati, Everything was written when he was over there. And uh, so sadly, less than 100 years after Bhaskara II was when this uh, Delhi Sultanate people came, destroyed the entire ecosystem over there. So astronomy was gone. That part of it, at least in Ujjain, it was gone over there. So we are seeing that Islamic invasions starting from uh, bin Qasim, continuing to Ghazni and Ghori, then the Delhi Sultanate, followed by the Mughals. The Mughals are utterly bigoted people. We know, all know about Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb, for example, not only destroyed several temples and universities, he also prevented surveillance of Vedic pundits on the banks of Ganga. You could not even have a Samayelan with 10, 15 people listening to your discourse and teaching. His soldiers even prevented that. There's a firman that talks about even that, at preventing these kind of things. So the learning was pervasively stopped by them. And of course, we all know Bhaktiar Khilji and Nalanda and what happened over there. We know about that also. So the Islamic period was one of great destruction. In fact, what we see is in India, uh, we see some of the great scientists and uh, astronomers where... In the northern part, it is not as if to say there were nobody in the southern part. They were in the southern part also, but the northern part, Aryabhatta, Varaha Mihira, Bhaskara 1, Bhaskara 2. So many people lived there prior to the Islamic invasions. Once the Islamic invasion started and took root, we see there is no more science and technology in the northern part of India. However, in the southern part of India, under the protection of the Vijayanagar Empire, over a period of 300 years, the Vijayanagara Empire put a stop, literally the Great Wall of India, preventing the Muslims from coming to the south. Under the protection of the Hindu Vijayanagar Empire, we are seeing the the, 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 um, the encourage and patronage of science, technology, mathematics, and other such things. And all the great mathematicians, astronomers, are in southern India after Islamic invasion. Madhava, Parameshwara, Nilakanta Somayaji, Mahendra Suri, so many others, we can, Kamala, Kara, we can talk about so many people who lived in southern part of India, nothing in northern part of India. So what it is telling you is in the Islamic period, there was a wiping out northern India of the learning ecosystem, which migrated to the south under Vijayanagar. Once Vijayanagar was destroyed with the Bahmani sultans, once again, there was a purging of Indian knowledge system for a short period of time. After that, the Nayaka rulers, who were the chieftains under Vijayanagar. They took over the Maratha rulers who were also chieftains under the Vijayanagar. They took over. That's the Shivaji in that lineage. So they took over. They were able to protect until such time the colonial people came. When the colonial people came, you see that is also erased. Even the southern India, the traditional knowledge is erased. So this is now I've covered from modern period, which is um, uh, the socialists, the the Marxists, the colonial period, the Islamic period. Prior to that, we have to look at what is the Christianity did. It's a double entry of Christianity. Christianity came um, at a time about 330 current era. All this nonsense about Jesus Christ uh, and 30 current eras is all um, uh, subjective. One has got to look into the evidence for that. The evidence appears to be Pauline's epistles. Pauline, the Paul is epistles of Paul and other such things. Anyway, but bottom line is that 330 current era Constantine adopted Christianity as a state religion of the Roman Empire. His successor was Theodosius. That Theodosius was an uh, exact exa- example of the Talibanic madman. So he was a Talibanic Christian, literally, you can say. So he destroyed all the old centers of learning in the Roman Empire, which means the Greek uh, libraries, the Greek temples, the any so-called pagan knowledge was seen as uh, against Christianity and they destroyed just about everything over there. Until such time, Greece had strong contact with India and they were learning from Indians and a lot of Indian knowledge is preserved in uh, ancient Greece, Library of Alexandria and places like that. All of that was purged by the early Christians through about a 300 to 400 year period, they went through this. So some of the method Theoroshis used was Uh, burning libraries, killing people, and only giving jobs to Christians. If you wanted a job in the state, then you had to be a Christian. You could not get it if you're a so-called pagan. So many people even left the place. So we're seeing Christianity was one of the primary reasons why the um, Roman Empire fell into Dark Ages. See, the Roman Empire came in 145 BCE after a war with the uh, Greek Empire. So after that war, the ascendancy of Rome can be seen. So Rome adopted all the Greek gods, Greek learning, Greek everything. They adopted that from 145 BC until Constantine in 330 current era. So in 330 current era, adoption of Christianity and they promptly fell into dark ages. Promptly, literally right over there. So the the, the Talibanic kind of fervor which they came against rationality, against logic, against learning But their only goal was believe in Christ and believe the only way to father is through the son. All these theologies are developing at that time. So uh, that's the only way to do it. So once learning was gone, they were gone all through until uh, the so-called age of uh, reformation and age of rationalism. They were a gone case in dark ages. It's only after that we see European sciences. And again, European sciences, we can talk about it later, how it grew from ancient Indian sciences. We can see that connection also. So I think to answer your question, Vibhutiji, we are seeing that the destruction of Indian knowledge happened in several waves. It happened from the Greeks, uh, from the uh, once transmission to Greeks had happened, and Roman Empire, Constantine Christianity, destroyed in Europe and Dark Ages, we are seeing that. Bin Qasim and Delhi Sultanate and Mughals, we are seeing destruction in India. Then uh, colonial period, all the way through Max Muller, William Jones, Max Muller, and the rest, and to uh, Maculay and the rest, we are seeing destruction through ethnocide, British ethnocide. Then from Nehru, we are seeing destruction in uh, independent India from 1947. From Indira Gandhi, we are continuing to see the destruction until today. Till today, nothing has been done to change the ecosystem. So the destruction that started from Constantine Christianity of Indian knowledge systems continues till the present day. This is what
1: we're seeing. OK, I just, uh, want to ask you just about, one second. You know, I just asked a question and we got a fabulous uh, education on that. Thank you, Raji. It is a pleasure to be listening to you. And I would encourage all the viewers, ask questions. Today is the day to get your knowledge, not from Google, but from the from the guru himself. Sorry, Sanjay, okay. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: I just want to focus on the methods of interpretation that the Westerners employed and why we have not been able to point out the deficiencies there. Because uh, <clears throat> our systems of uh, what we call our concepts of time, our concepts of logic, our epistemology, right. all of them are fundamentally different from the Westerners' right. point of view. Right. For instance, uh, when a Westerner goes to interpret the Vedas, he goes and looks at the words. Whereas right. in India the, always, the tradition has always been to look at the Vedas not as words and not as a book, but as a knowledge system. Right. And uh, you look at the words only in order to decipher what kind of knowledge they are leading you to right and that is in consonance with our four dimensional system where we have what is called the adibhautik, adhidaivik adhyatmik and para right and uh, of course this para is uh, completely <laughs> missing from the uh, western <coughs> uh, western world view so but i have this uh, problem with a lot of uh, these interpretations and These Westerners, uh, when I have arguments with them, they simply seem to uh, miss out the point completely, unless they are schooled somewhat in the Indian systems. And they completely miss out the point that uh, they are uh, interpreting something which is aimed much higher from a much lower standpoint. Very true, very true.
2: Let, let me address that that's an excellent question excellent excellent question it is an existential question existential question for the western civilization and about ancient indian It's really an existential because if you go back to epistemology itself and look at indian knowledge systems for the longest time we had a shruti the smriti among the Smriti, we got the Vedangas, we got uh, different kinds of knowledge systems, the Pramanas and the Shad We have got various ways in which knowledge is admitted in ancient India. All the different Sampradayas who looked at different means of knowledge generation always saw how do we acquire knowledge about ourself? That was the primary motive of the Indian civilization, which is to dispel avidya from our minds about our true nature and acquired that we are part of Brahman. This is the understanding that we were going towards and whichever area of science that you studied or whatever, eventually the goal was towards understanding the truth. So a one line description of the Indian civilization is, a Hindu is a person who is a seeker, a seeker of knowledge. So it does not matter whether you're doing in mathematics, astronomy, or philosophy, or anything. Eventually, any knowledge system studied deeply enough will become philosophical. You will come to existential questions. You will come to uh, epistemological questions. You will come to a notion where you say, which is the worldview that best describes a cosmos as we see it today? And what we are seeing is our ancient rishis understood this beautifully. They said, there is no dichotomy. There's no such thing as creator is here, creation is there. Everything is Brahman. We are part of Brahman. And to understand that is a great uh, uh, learnings required on our part to remove the avidya, to remove the maya of our existence, understand the impermanence of objects, understand where everything is interconnected, understand our role over here. So we have the pramanas to guide us. We have the various vedangas to guide us. We have the various other things to guide us and learn. It's not only a question of uh, just reading them and uh, going with a static view. Every time in India, we are seeing a growth of knowledge systems if you take, for example, astronomy, I start taking, uh, talking about sidereal month, synodic month. By the time you come to Aryabhata, you got trigonometry, spherical geometry. By the time you come to Nilakanta Somayaji, you got partial heliocentric model. Continuous tradition of knowledge growth we're seeing, not stagnation, a dynamic tradition. That is what we're seeing. So this is how, in epistemology, we can say Indians were seekers of knowledge and truth. This is what a scientist does today. A scientist looks at the phenomenon. He sees what have others talked about this phenomenon in the past? What has been their assumptions and understandings? Where does their understanding break down? Is this the problem over here? How can I advance this learning? This is what a scientist would do today. This is exactly what our rishis also did. By contemplation, by sadhana, by observing, by measurements, experiments, they were able to advance knowledge. On the other hand, ever since Judaism came on the scene, but I'll start my story with Christianity, Christianity came on the scene, we can see that it has been one of you shall obey. Your goal in life was one of you need salvation because you are fallen, you are a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you need the grace of God to admit you to everlasting life in the afterlife. Otherwise, eternal damnation and purgatory. This is the way they saw it. And Islam came along and said the same old things that, yes, unless through the mercy of Allah and you believe Muhammad, is the last prophet, all these things, you'll be admitted in Jannah, others, you'll be eternal purgatory in hell. This is the way they saw things. So, in their philosophies, knowledge does not matter. Knowledge is inconsequential to the goal of civilization of Jannah. Inconsequential. It does not matter. It's just a footnote in the Islamic civilization, it does not exist in the Christian civilization about knowledge and other things, your only goal is to obey, obey the divine dictated law, which the gospels have written about Christ, only way to the father is through the son, or Muhammad heard from Archangel Gabriel, and he wrote down the Quran, and the Hadiths came later on, all these kind of things, you only believe these things, otherwise uh, you are destined for uh, hell. knowledge does not matter, so we are seeing that there is a difference in the epistemology between the Indian civilization and the Abrahamic uh, outgrowths. I uh, refuse to call them civilizations. So you're uh, seeing a difference right over there. Then how did they accommodate knowledge? If you look at the ancient history, Greeks readily took Indian knowledge. Babylonians readily took Indian knowledge. Romans readily took Indian knowledge because they were not subscribing to this notion of a jealous monotheistic God who hates everybody else, us and them dynamic. They are not uh, seeing any of those things. They were taking Indian divinities and mapping it to their divinities and uh, using as long as they were like that, they had learning rationality. Constantine Christianity, Theodosius changed the equation, dark ages for them islam came along and once again dark ages and uh, there are their own problems they they had baghdad house of wisdom true but they went through periods of great ignorance and illiteracy too in that uh, in that in that culture and 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 we are seeing that when the rediscovery of india happened through the colonial people the, their rediscovery rather they found that uh, uh, they found that look at this indian knowledge system it's so advanced so they had two options like i said do we accept it or do we force fit it to the biblical chronology? So they force fit it to biblical uh, biblical chronology in 1700s and so on. Reformation happened somewhere around that time. This reformation was a movement in their society where they were fed up with the papal bulls of Catholic Church and other such things. And the Protestants went, uh, so-called Protestants, they revolted and they, uh, they, they formed through Martin Luther and others, they formed their own movements and such things. Therein, was born the age of rationalism because coincidentally at that time colonialism had started and they're starting to learn Indian literature. People like Voltaire and others were learning Upanishads. Do you know how Upanishads they were learning through Dara translations. Dara the unfortunate brother of Aurangzeb, he was very indic in his thinking. He had translated the uh, Upanishads into Persian and that had found its way into France, translated into French. And they got their first glimpse after Greek contact with uh, Indian thought this way. And they were blown away by this kind of a worldview, which is completely different from you shall obey, became you shall seek. And that gave rise to the age of rationalism. People like Voltaire, people like so many other of the great thinkers over there. It started there. That also was a time when uh, poor old man Darwin, took this Beagle ship and went to the Galapagos Island. (laughs) And he discovered that observing the natural world over there, he said that there appears to be something like natural selection. So something like natural selection is at work and uh, he proposed theory of evolution and things like that, causing a great furor in uh, Europe and America at that time saying, "No, no, it's not possible. We are not related to apes. God made us in his image. We are perfect. We are made in his image. How can we relate it to this? So there caused a great dichotomy over there because science was coming and saying all these things and uh, Christian theology was saying something else. So we have to take the story a little back to Copernicus, who was even scared of talking about heliocentric model at that time because it was against the church injunctions. Galileo had to recant. Galileo looked and said about the heliocentrism in addition. He had to recant all that because it was against the church thinking. So church had an option. Do we go with science or do we uphold our theology? The theology is demanding God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. And he had made man in his image, perfectly in his image. And he made Eve out inferiorly out of man's rib. This is the thinking. Then the fall of man and all those things. So do we uphold that? Or do we go with our natural, rational observations, logical thinking, experiments? Do we do that? They chose the latter, saying that if you say these things, Galileo, blasphemy, you'll be killed. So recant. And they even burnt a fellow called Bruno at the stake because Bruno had adopted the Indian thinking that the cosmos is infinite. And he was describing infinity. So they burnt him at the stake of the Vatican. You go to Vatican today, behind that is a fountain square. That is where they burnt him. So, so this is how they reacted. But by the time you come to Darwin, this age of rationalism for them had started then. The Indians had pramanas. We were seekers. We questioned everything. We don't need rationalism logic. We can give lessons to them on those things. But in that society, coming out of you are a believer, and you shall believe and follow coming from that philosophy to suddenly looking at the natural world and trying to express it in mathematics, trying to express it in logic. It was new. So you see clashes in that society. Uh, for example, theory of evolution that caused Christian fundamentalists to go on rampage. About Galileo and others that caused it to go on rampage. So many things came, science came to direct conflict with Christian theology and they could not deal with that. So this reformation and rationalism gave them an excuse in the French society to say secularism, we separate the church and the state. And we say that all affairs of the church are in a different domain. You do what you like over there. Over here, we shall secularly, rationally, we shall examine science and see where this is taking us. So that separation was critical for them because in that uh, society, science and theology cannot coexist because they are believers they have to believe, otherwise blasphemy, head chopped off. So you had to go over there. So the only way to deal with this problem was to separate these two and go over there. Indians, no such thing. We are seeing forever science and philosophies intertwined in the Indian thinking, in the context of metaphors, in the context of stories, in the context of understanding how to uh, see the natural world in a way that we remember. We are seeing this forever. For example, Ayurveda. Ayurveda, according to Das Dasgupta, one of our philosophers in 1930 or so, he said, Ayurveda can be seen in India under two categories. It saw it as ill health is appearing because of poor diet. If ill health comes because of poor diet, it requires methods of Ayurveda to cure you. On the other track, he's saying ill health can also happen because of karma phala. That you have done something bad or whatever karma, bad karma got that and you need prasthita and methods of Prayasheeta and uh, Atharva-Veda practices to cure you. So we are seeing today in modern world, we can cast it as follows. We can say one of them is physiological problems, other one is psychological problems. How do you deal with the fact that you're born as a cripple or blind or other such things, Inequities of life bear on you? You say, why is everybody else better than me? Why, is why am I alone cursed like this? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the problems of life when you have some handicap? So we can say that, yes, This was one way of looking at physiological, one way of looking at psychological issues and dealing with it. Or the other way to see it also is that it existed perfectly. Shushruta did enormous compendiums of medical knowledge. Uh, Charaka did enormous compendiums. So was Vagbata and others. They had no problem with having the metaphor of Indian knowledge systems, Indian divinities coming into their works and describing these things. What we're seeing again and again is that uh, Indians had no clash with philosophy of the land and with the sciences they were exploring because we were seekers, seekers of the truth. What is Brahman? The big capital T truth. We are going after that. And because of that, we had no dichotomy. Even today, I as a scientist proudly say I'm a Hindu. And that's the only way I can be a scientist also. Whereas in the so-called Western world, if you're a scientist, you have to discard your religion at the footstep of your office, of your laboratory before you enter. Otherwise you cannot. All this intelligent design, creation design, creationism is nonsense. Is an attempt to, uh, uh, co- again, coalesce uh, Christian theology with uh, science. It's all utter nonsense. So, so bottom line, <laughs> to address your question and on epistemology, Sanjay Ji, we see because of these fundamental ideas, Indians have had no problem in addressing science, learning, truth, philosophy. It's natural for us. It is who we are. There is no paradox in my thinking as a scientist with anything with Hinduism. Whereas a Christian scientist, it could be an oxymoron, but you have to deal with issues of science and theological beliefs. You have to deal with those things. So we don't have that. And the Muslims, obviously the same. Muslims can't believe in theory of evolution. Muslims can't believe in many, many things. Even heliocentrism, because they believe the sun sets into a muddy pool and things of that nature. So unless you have expedient uh, interpretations of these things, it's impossible for them to reconcile their theology on science. That is what we're seeing.
0: Well, uh, as far as the uh, Islamic theology is concerned... Uh, even today their molanas they go around uh, saying that uh, sun goes around the earth and uh, one of the foundational what is called the theologians Ahmad Raza barelvi who founded the uh, barelvi order he has written a three volume tome proving that the sun goes around the earth
2: <laughs> so over there Sondreji, exactly. let, me add, let me add that let me add there. people often say what about Indians they also believe in geocentric model true true when Indians started the frame of reference was geocentric frame of reference Aryabhata when he got his epicycle model of the solar system he said geocentric earth and but then Aryabhata already knew about the ecliptic so he had something called an equant which is away from the center And he also had a multi-epicycle model. He had an epicycle model with something called a shigra and a manda, which are two epicycles. Very complicated model. But the bottom line is he had an earth-centric frame of reference, the ecliptic coordinate system, and he was able to describe the motion of heavenly bodies perfectly. No, no problem at all. He was able to do it with trigonometry, understand motion of Mercury, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Moon, and everything, Mars, he was able to do all of these things, Venus and no, no issues at all. Then we are seeing that in the development of mathematics, Vedanga Jyotisha, if you go to 1400 BC, that is the one that is telling you how to track the heavenly bodies using a linear mathematical equation. Vedanga Jyotisha has got something called rule of three which it says apply repeatedly again and again. Look at Kompana Shastri translation, Vedanga Jyotisha, you find it there. One of the verses there is saying, today we recognize it by the familiar mathematics. Mathematics says A by B equal to C by X. If that ratio if you take, then X is equal to cross multiplication BC divided by A. We are seeing that in Vedanga Jyotisha, where for example, using the many instruments that are known from Harappa times to Aryabhata to many, we have many astronomical instruments. If you measure that a heavenly body has moved a distance of delta S in time delta T, they had water clocks and things like that to measure the passage of time. You could ask the question in some of the time capital T, how much will this move? using this rule of 3 you could find out that it was multiply delta s divided by delta t times t and you'll find how much it's moved that's a linear extrapolation of your current time to a projected future time and vedanga jyotisha is saying repeatedly apply that which means it knows iteration you must do it repeatedly to get uh, to get the correct result so we are seeing this in 1400 bc in india <laughs> but in the Western uh, experience, they are saying that it is uh, Babylon, which is first track movement of Venus, movement of Jupiter and other things in 800 BC. Utter nonsense. This is much earlier here. But anyway, why did I say that? I said that because from, from Vedanga Jyotisha, you come to Aryabhata, he's got sine cause nonlinear functions. He's saying linear is not enough. I need nonlinear. I need properties of right angle, triangle. I need spherical uh, geometry to understand this. By the time you come to Brahmagupta, He's got second order interpolation formulas, all in mathematics, basically trying to take a nonlinear function and have first term, second term, and try to understand these things. By the time you come to Madhava of Kerala, he's got infinite series for sine, the nonlinear functions. So we are seeing a continuous understanding of the Indian models from geocentric model of Aryabhata through more and more mathematics, better and better refinements. By the time you come to Bhaskara II, he's got a pulsating epicycle model. Very, very, very uh, uh, accurate. And but it's also there in Surya Siddhanta, by the way. And by the time you go to uh, Nilakanta Somayaji, he's saying, okay, let the Earth be the frame of reference. And the sun is going around the Earth and the moon is going around the Earth. But all the planets, which is Mercury, Venus, Mars, Saturn, Jupiter, are going around the sun. So he's saying all the planets are going around the sun and sun and all these planets in turn are going around the earth. So you're seeing partial heliocentric model 100 years before they found out in Europe. At, at Tycho, Tycho Brahe, for example, used the same model of nilakantha Somayaji 150 years later in Europe. So why am I saying this? In India, we were not hard and fast to some injunction in some sacred text that said geocentric model. Believe that. Whereas in some of the tradition, if Moma, the perfect person said that, they can't contradict it. They have to go with it. There's no way you can change it. You have to go. If the Genesis said six day creation and such thing, you have to go with it. You can't change it. Whereas in India, we were not held by blasphemy laws or any such thing to seeking of knowledge. We are seeing a continuous evolution in the knowledge systems of India over time from Veda, Vedanga Jyotisha, Aryabhatta, Brahmagupta, Gupta, Bhaskara II to Nirakanta Somayaji, all the way to Patani, Samanta, Chandrasekhar of Odisha, we are seeing a continuous evolution in the classical knowledge of India, mathematics and so on. So such a tradition is one where we will eventually find the knowledge systems if not for the interruption we had with the Islamics and the uh, colonialists and the socialists and Marxists. If not for these interventions, Classical India would have uh, developed tremendously good models and such things, uh, g- given given that we never had this issue of uh, blasphemy, separation, secularism, and all this nonsense.
0: <laughs> right, right. And uh, before we go to the audience questions, uh, Vibhutiji,
1: I have I have one uh, thing I had read about all that how Indian wisdom, science, and technology was taken away from us. Today, by listening to you, you have proved a scientific theory very valid. You learn more by listening. Thank you very much, So That's one part which is very important. But the element is that you talked about heliocentric model, binary, you know, algorithm. These are all Indian intuitive knowledge base. Right. They have all been systematically stolen by us. Right including the atomic part of it, you know, like uh, Kanada was Rasheed, born, Rasheed, born, Rasheed born. Born, born, conceived or whatever. So the question is, is, it, is everything stolen like this? Is that the reason why the West insists and established a patent, techno- patent formula, patent act, to protect what they had stolen actually, not protect what they had created? And this is what they are putting pressure on us that India has no patent laws. Hey, we, you stole everything from us. Actually, you should give it back to us. So the politically speaking now, where do we go from here? How does, how does the current generation of Indians become entrepreneurs, become innovators, become unicorns by relying on their own or relying upon the West as the stolen guys, those people who destroyed us? We need no, a cultural revolution, in my opinion, right now. We need a massive cultural revolution right now.
2: Very true. Very true. Very true. So your so your, your your question is very, very complicated, Vibhutiji. So a lot of angles to it. A lot of angles. No simple answer. There are so many angles to this.
1: I will but quote let's... you Einstein's quote here. It is... <laughs> Any intelligent fool can complicate a simple problem. I did just now. You said that, but now you have to now you have to unravel that
2: simplicity. So no, I wouldn't. I would describe it that way. But 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 go, go going back, like you said, all these inventions. If you go to Pingala, Hemachandra, or Mahavira and others, we see combinatorics over there. If you go to atomic theory, you see Rishi Kanada over there. Much before Democritus, Democritus came to India and studied Kanada's theory and repeated it in Greece. And we see mathematics, like I said, uh, people like Hipparchus did not have trigonometry; they had chord tables. And it is we see trigonometry for the first time in Surya Siddhanta, right angle triangles. Surya Siddhanta from that Aryabhatta. So any knowledge system you take prior to the Islamic invasion, we are seeing that had origins in India and were exported out. And because of the existential problems of abrahamic traditions we are seeing some of the issues that you talked about today why what do i mean by that for example like i said if if indian knowledge system is old then you had to deal with the fact that genesis is a false account christianity is wrong can't deal with that so you have to now say aryan invasion happened india is a young civilization contact with greeks made them civilized and prior to that they had no civilization plus it's backward they are caste ridden all these kind of constructs come because of these five frameworks that i said the colonial framework eurocentric framework the missionary framework the socialist uh, leftist academia framework marxist framework these five frameworks are controlling historiography of india even today to advance their bigoted ideologies to control the Indian diaspora, Indian minds and everything with the bigoted ideas. And on the West, they are very happy with it because it coincides with their project, which is to show the superiority of the Western civilization. Therefore, any science and technology must have come from ancient Greeks, then a period of silence during the dark ages, then suddenly a rediscovery of Greek knowledge through the Arabs and the Indians and the glorious Western Renaissance and other such things. We are seeing existential problems there, Eurocentric ideas there, and other such things there also. So, today, unfortunately, in India, these five frameworks are controlling the historiography. So, any kid coming out of the Indian education system or even the Western education system is learning this rubbish concocted distorted rubbish is being filled. Propaganda has been filled into their heads. So by the time they graduate in the 12th standard with the kind of history and social studies, we are raving uh, leftist maniacs, literally going around talking about the corrupted Indian civilization, caste system, cow, that, this, and uh, all our people who are primitive. They had, if you, the minute you say Jyotisha in Vedanga Jyotisha, they'll say, oh, horoscope. That is the kind of uh, nonsense to which pedestrian level to which we have been reduced, where we cannot even connect with the enormous mathematical, astronomical tradition, continuous growth and models and such things that we have had. So this is the level of ignorance which we have been left by these forces. So you asked, how can the modern Indian youth uh, get out of this and, uh, uh, um, and be an entrepreneur uh, unfettered by these kind of ideas? I think it calls for uh, uh, people with great awakening. The tamas must be gone completely from their mind, literally, or at least a significant portion of it should be out of their mind, where they're able to read the works of several thought leaders in the space. There are several people who have written books. Sanjay ji has also written a book, uh, Sai Deepak, and several others, uh, Rajima Malhotra, and several others have written books trying to awaken some of these uh, notions in us. So that we see all these forces acting on us and we are able to... Uh, uh, Take hold of our own narrative. That getting hold of our own narrative has not been done by the BJP for the last so many years. Much could have been done, but has not been done. Maybe because they're ignorant of these issues. I don't know. I cannot be an apologist for them, but uh, they've not done it. So the picture continues. If if Bhagawan forbid, if it turns out that uh, these people are also out of power and the Congress, UPA comes back to power, this destruction will continue, accelerated. If you can say that the destruction is not accelerated, but is somewhat slowly, we are destroying ourselves now, it will become an accelerated destruction in the future with these forces. So I do not see us reclaiming our narrative. We are already on a hugely declining curve in terms of understanding our knowledge systems, our past. There is a great awakening happening today. I'll admit that there's a great awakening happening today because there is a lot of thirst, civilizational thirst is there now, people to understand who are we, what are we. And I'm finding that more and more in the talks that I give, more and more people are reading, commenting, understanding, and trying to propagate these ideas in social media. A lot of ignorance is also there, but there is this hunger is there. What is the real knowledge? Who are we? What are we? So with these political dispensations uh, methodology leading us over here and the civilizational hunger going up, I'm hoping eventually there'll be a a critical wave at which point the political dispensation has to listen, has to listen to the mass which says that this is who we are, this is what we want to uh, see happen. When that happens, hopefully our understanding of our identity will be better. Not this identity that's been force fit on us by these five forces, but the true identity of Indians where people can have self-esteem, strength in the civilization, knowledge of who we are, and advance these things with great uh, strength. What we are seeing also is that from 1500s to 1900s, there has been a monopoly on science and technology by the West, thanks to colonialism. Thanks colonialism and their ramping up of Indian knowledge. You alluded to that in the beginning, where Indian knowledge through the Arabs went into, uh, uh, into Europe via Spain, converted from Sanskrit, Sanskrit to Arabic, Arabic to Latin. That is how Western Europe learned many of these things, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries leading to Renaissance. And then once Renaissance came about, it also came about with colonialization from Vasco da Gama, Columbus, and all these kinds of people. And that led to the destruction of uh, older civilizations, knowledge systems. All over India, you see that, Asia, you see that, and everywhere else. And the West, Tried to hold on to its exploitive model that God put you on earth to exploit the resources of the earth. And they did not want any of these uh, Indians to participate in the Industrial Revolution that was going on because they had taken Indian knowledge systems, Indian taxes paid for the Industrial Revolution, for example. It was a bankroller. Indian taxes were the bankroller for the Industrial Revolution and such things. But they were interested in destroying, for example, the muslin, uh, entire muslin trade in India example all over india's coast any place you go in india's uh, ancient coastline medieval coastline you'll find cotton trading cotton manufacture cotton trading because india was renowned for this throughout the world they destroyed that literally overnight literally overnight with textiles coming from lancashire and places like that they destroyed that once they had the spinning jenny and other such textiles with understanding from india so what we're seeing is the monopoly on science and technology was done by the west by for example, in India, by imposing ethnocide, by these five mechanisms of ethnocide, destroying Indian education system, identity, history, religion, poverty, and such things. They ensured that Indians will not participate in this growth, which is reserved for the West. So the West quickly ramped up on its uh, GDP, if you will, because of these uh, unfair practices and illegal unfair practices or genocidal practices, they ramped up at the same time, uh, Asia was stagnant. However, when the uh, playing field was leveled, we are seeing that Indian scientists, for example, Jagdish Chandra Bose, C.V. Raman, we are seeing uh, um, uh, Ramanujam and uh, so many others who uh, came and beat them at their own game and said, this is a much, much better science technology than you can do. We are seeing that. We are seeing that. So uh, uh, my, my, my thinking is that um, for Indian youth today to have high self-esteem and be able to reclaim the narrative calls for fixing a lot of issues in the way we are approaching this issue today. The bottom line is ignorance. We have tremendous ignorance of our past because we are deracinated. We are deracinated, mentally colonized even today. How to get rid of that, break those shackles and get out of that with knowledge. So read the works of thought leaders, read the works that others are talking and do your own investigation. You're a seeker after all. You belong to that civilization. That's in your DNA. So become a seeker and hopefully uh, we will see people's self-esteem go. As the civilizational awareness is going up, hunger is going up, hopefully in the next uh, few generations, if we are not completely killed off by this uh, cancel culture and other such things, uh, because they control the media today, mass media and things like that, hopefully we will see a reversal
0: right so now we go to the questions Uh, lots of them and before that i request everyone to please uh, like